This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's move to a story uh, that we talked about just briefly as we were breaking those headlines. A Bloomberg scoop. Uh, Jillian Tan, one of the authors of the aforementioned story. It's about SoftBank, the second vision fund starting life, as the headline says, a lot smaller. She joins us on the phone now from New York City. So, GT, bring us up to date. $2 billion, not exactly what they were going for, it seems. Yeah, so you're obviously familiar with first closes, as we see in the private equity industry all the time. This $2 billion is just a first close. Right. Obviously, the Vision Fund's still going to keep collecting money for the second technology fund. But I think probably a very surprising number for people to sort of see, because when you see first closes, usually it's 30 to 50 to 70 percent of a fund's overall target. SoftBank said, I think it was July, that it was targeting 108 billion. So, yeah, 2 billion sort of in the war chest now, so it can start making investments. Um, we obviously expect that number to rise, and all eyes are on where um, the money is coming from in terms of other prospective LPs that will be parking money in the vehicle. Well, and that where is so important when it comes to the specific players and the size that they committed last time. Talk to us specifically about Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so Saudi Arabia contributed basically half of the first fund, almost half at $45 billion, and um, Abu Dhabi's Mubadala at $15 billion. We've reported that they're still considering how much to actually put into this second fund. And what actually may hurt SoftBank is the whopping loss it took on Vision Fund 1 at the end of the quarter to September 30, um, driven by losses on WeWork and Uber, which is obviously a public company now. You know, it's interesting, Jillian. I think about some of the conversations uh, Jason and I have had with, you know, various officials who watch, you know, the startup world or, you know, public versus private markets and the impact of what Vision Fund has had on it and, and their role in terms of WeWork. But I do wonder, they say, you know, venture money like you make some good investments you make some bad now i realize that the vision fund has had uh you know a few high profile that haven't gone the way that they had hoped but i do wonder you know one mega investment and then the money comes running back in i mean isn't that kind of how the financial world ultimately works yeah, so what's a super interesting dynamic is that a lot of the Vision Fund's main investors and really anyone who's pumping money into the venture capital and private equity industry, they need somewhere to park their money. And if you think of places like Japan, there are a suite of financial institutions there. They're earning negative interest rates. So basically anything is better. Obviously, right. they don't want to lose money, but they're still looking to put it out somewhere. Um, and the Vision Fund's obviously, you know, got a decent brand. It's you know, found 90 or so investments for Vision Fund 1 that it spent in less than three years. So people are confident that there's deal flow. I think it's more the consideration on return. Right. Well, and and it's interesting, Jillian, and and you followed this so closely, and we've talked with lots of folks about it. I believe it came up with Imran Khan um, from Verishop, Mm -hmm. obviously former uh, senior strategy guy at Snap. 
SoftBank had, and the Vision Fund specifically, had such an impact on the on the broader investing world in terms of that scope and scale. Obviously, in terms of the names that it backed, but also its mere presence in the market felt like it had a, a really significant impact on valuations and how other investors ultimately behaved. Yeah, I think it's it's been interesting to see how other investors are treating a lot of the Vision Fund portfolio companies. Um, obviously, there's only quite a small universe of folks that can invest alongside the Vision right. Fund at these valuations, uh, the strategics in the space, or even folks like General Atlantic that do more like growth equity are actually jumping in and some of these higher valuations. Some of the other venture funds have obviously raised bigger funds, but nothing obviously compares to the size of the initial Vision Fund, which has really changed the landscape. One last question, Gillian. I do wonder, could they have waited, though, to kind of beef up that initial you know, dollar amount, amount that they came out with? Could they have waited should they have waited like to come out and say well we had five billion or, or seven would that have been or a 20 more promising or 20 <laughs> closer to you know kind of where they were going uh and i wonder by not doing that what does it say yeah i think that's an interesting question i think it also is driven by the hunger to sort of put money out right so yeah. It's a question, are you going to lose a deal if you wait another two months or two to get to a certain number or do you just want to get at least one to two deals sort of bedded down that you've sort of already been talking to for a few months, probably more now, right? You can't just lead on these potential portfolio companies forever. They have access to capital elsewhere. Um, so for SoftBank, probably it was a, you know, they had to weigh the decision um, as to whether to hold a first close or, or sort of wait, all right, Jillian Tan, we so much appreciate it. Great story on the terminal right now. Another scoop from GT SoftBank's second vision fund, starting life a lot smaller. Well, let's turn now to another story Jillian has been all over. For that, we go to Ellen Hewitt out in San Francisco in our 960 studio. We work, as we alluded to at the top of the show, the hits just keep on coming there. Ellen, big news that you helped break today about the SEC. What's going on with WeWork? So as we reported this morning, the SEC is making a what we would call an early preliminary inquiry into WeWork. This is coming from its enforcement division, which is the part of the SEC you don't want to be hearing from. <laughs> and the and WeWork has we also reported that WeWork has in response or in preparation hired a man named Andrew Ceresny, who used to be the head of the SEC's enforcement division. Now he works in private um, for a private law firm, and, and they've retained his services. So, you know, we don't know what exactly this inquiry is focused on. Um, we just know it's happening. Uh, and again, as with many SEC uh, inquiries, we don't know if anything is going to come of it. But it is notable. I think the the way that we look at this is like it's not so unexpected that given the coverage that has been coming out about WeWork over the last few months and over the last year that the SEC would take an interest in this and come and kick the tires. Well, a that's a good I love that you say that that because of the attention, right? Like if if the IPO had gone okay and everything else had fallen into place, we might not be talking about this. That's possible. You know, I think they they feel like, you know, this is reading the tea leaves a little bit. My understanding is the SEC feels like yeah, they you know it, it is their job to come in and do things such as asking companies to hold on to documents um, and and to preserve things that may become important later if something more formal goes forward. Um, again, we don't know 
we're just sort of trying to follow right. it as as it comes out. But but that could be something that they do. Apparently, that's something they do fairly often. Well, and it's interesting, Ellen, sort of connecting this up with the conversation we just had uh, with our colleague, your colleague and mine, and Carol's Jillian Tan about SoftBank and its vision fund. You know, part of what uh, really distorted this whole situation was the vision fund's mm-hmm. role as essentially for a long time the ultimate backer of WeWork. And it feels like one of the things that really caught people off guard as it went along was not just the valuation, but ultimately what feels like the lack of oversight uh, over Adam Newman and his executive team there at WeWork. Yeah, I think this is a reflection of, you know, many people think that if you run a private business, uh, you know, maybe the SEC cares a little less <laughs> about what you do. I, I feel like that attitude is shifting. Yeah. That's something that has obviously been part of the conversation for the last few years, especially as these private companies get bigger and bigger outside of the uh, the outside of the public markets. Then, you know, it is the SEC's job to pay more attention to how financial dealings happen. You know, just because you're private doesn't mean the SEC can't come in and say like you were misleading investors. About this or that, we saw it happen with Theranos. This was somewhere mm, where you know um, <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos faced um, uh, fines and and other repercussions from the SEC for misleading investors about the health of the business and, and related things while they were fundraising. Ellen, when you look at WeWork, I mean, and I just think about the flurry of news that's come out, most of it negative, right, since the IPO has come undone, uh, and including the IPO coming undone. I mean, how do you see this? What are you hearing from the folks that you talk to in the startup community about what's the future of this company? I think people do, you know, I, I do hear people talk about it, and I also believe, having covered the company for years at this point, that what they sell is quite valuable. You know, um, mm-hmm. I hear a lot of other startup founders complain to me about how much they would like to be focusing on running their business, and yet they have to deal with getting new office space, growing into newer uh, you know, offices, and, and taking on leases, hiring real estate people. I mean, it's all this stuff that they, they would rather pay someone else to deal with. In a way, that's what we work, and to, to their credit, a lot of their competitors offer as well. So, I think people, when they're looking for something to be hopeful about with WeWork, they, they turn to just how valuable and um, how much people are willing to pay for the service that they offer. And that seeming like, you know, and that's actually what um, Masayoshi Son mentioned in SoftBank Earnings last week. He talked about like how, how fruitful that could be if only we get everything else in order. So, that may be the path forward, or at least the narrative they want to um, put forward. Going, but I'm just yeah. waiting for the WeWork book by Alan Hewitt. <laughs> just saying. By um, a couple of reporters from the journal, and I think it's going to be really good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time and your great reporting on this. Ellen Hewitt from San Francisco. Don't you know step by step, step by step, you went alone. I bet right. this is on our playlist. Uh, well, <laughs> she's looking at me like you are one crazy woman. I bet it, it could be on uh, Sean Donovan's playlist. I though. think it's probably he's on got Sean a Donovan. wide-ranging, yeah. you know, sort of musical taste. But here's the thing: if we were to measure step by step, we're talking about an ultra marathon here. Step, when we step talk about step. the trade war, let's get into it. Christina Lindblad here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She is, of course, Business Week's global economics editor and senior trade reporter Sean Donovan, the aforementioned Sean Donovan. He's down in Washington with us. We're talking about the latest and the greatest. So, Sean, bring us up to date. What what do we know today here at 2.49 p.m. on Friday? Because whatever we knew a couple hours ago, I'm sure is probably out of date. 
Okay, so we got that ultra marathon, and Jason, I think it's very good of you to sign up to do it with me. <laughs> Carol's going to cheer us on. I'll give you water, okay? You'll give you water. Yeah. I think Christina is already cheering us on. <laughs> uh, the um, so look, I mean, Donald Trump made this decision that uh, he was going to take on China. This ultra marathon. This is the ultimate test of of any president when it comes to economics and trade. This is the ultimate challenge. And what he what he did a month ago was he split it into sections. Right? He said, actually, I'm going to do a whole bunch of five Ks. Uh, and and we're getting to the point where we are. You know, kind of coming to maybe the end of the first 5K, and that is this phase one deal that he announced uh, a month ago, October 11th, with Luha, the vice premier um, of uh, the People's Republic of China, in 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 the Oval Office. Uh, and at the time, he said, "You know, we got this all sorted out. Uh, it'll just take us three to five weeks to paper it." Well, we're at that point now, where they're trying to finish that papering, that putting this down and. In, into hard writing. Uh, we're told that uh, Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are getting on the phone today. We're told it hasn't happened yet, uh, but that they're going to get on the phone today with Lu He, and they're going to do some more right. negotiating, and hopefully they get close to something. All right, so, Christina, come on in on this. Uh, Sean saying the first, maybe it's a five th- 5K, that's the first leg. How long is this race? Well, one thing is the finish line keeps, you know, receding into the, the future. Keep adding another leg, it feels yeah. like, right? Um, we've been, in previous times, you know, on the verge of important deals. Actually, some of them which might have had bigger concessions, bigger wins, but as the White House, you know, wants it now to be breaking it up into smaller bits. Um, we'll have to see in the end what, what is in there. But some of the some of the terms that are being discussed, which is $50 billion in agricultural purchases from China, that's a, that's a big deal. Obviously, it wouldn't get there right away, but it, it's more than twice the level that prevailed before this all started. And so, Sean, as you think about some of these contours, and I highly recommend your story in the magazine this week because it really sort of lays out what, has happened, just as you uh, described to us at the beginning of this conversation, over time, you know, what what has been lost in, in all of this, I guess? What has fallen by the wayside? Well, I think the most important thing to, to remember here is the bar that President Trump set coming into office and the bar that we're going to hit now. And the bar that he set when he came into office was, I'm going to rewire the economic relationship with China, and I'm going to address all of these wrongs that China has committed uh, over decades, really, and that every other American president has let them get away with. And I'm going to fix all that. And the bar where we are now is, yes, Christina's right. You know, there is this goal to have 40 to $50 billion in agricultural purchases, and that would be more than twice what they were, what the Chinese were purchasing in 2017. But it kind of, that's in some ways just making up for the loss of exports that we've had over the past two years. There's going to be some intellectual property uh, uh, commitments, uh, some commitments to kind of clamp down on, on, on theft of IP. 
And that's kind of it from, from, from the Chinese. We'll get a, a vague agreement on currency manipulation and, and a few other things. But all of the hard issues, all of the stuff that you really need to tackle if you want to rewire that relationship, like industrial subsidies, the cheap loans and electricity and all of the other ways that the, the Chinese state helps Chinese companies compete internationally, uh, none of that is being addressed well, in this. And that all comes later. And that's the part of the marathon. That's the kind of heartbreak hill of the marathon. Yeah, that's that's when it gets really, really tough. So, Christine, I think about you know you and your team, um, your global economics team, along with Sean. Like, how are you? What are the, what are the stories that you want everybody to kind of be going after? What is the focal points going forward after we get maybe through this initial? Leg. Well, I don't want to tell anyone what stories. But, no, just kidding. No, but like, um, what are the things? Don't like, tip your hand too no, much but, there, like, Lindblad. But I think, like Sean says, you know, we get into the more difficult stuff. Like we we see the ag ag, ag and that's a big number, but. There's a lot of important no, issues No, I, still I didn't there. mean to imply that that was the be-all and end-all because it certainly, as Sean indicated, I mean, he raised the bar. It was the president who raised the bar. So it to me, it will be fascinating to see if what comes next, if something comes next, and that's a big if because yeah. there have been questions about whether the Chinese feel like they need to negotiate with the president who's facing re-election, who is fighting an impeachment process. Um, but how, how do you enforce all those other bits that that we want, which is the subsidies, the state help. And like Sean indicated, there are myriad ways in which Beijing supports its national champions. Um, that would be precedent setting in many, in, in many ways. Um, to get them to change their ways, yeah. right, in terms of supporting their industries and so on. Uh, Sean, last question for you, uh, USMCA. Give us a status report. We would call that Usmaka. Us, Usmaka is Usmaka. what Carol calls it. Usmaka. Yeah, Usmaka. just rolls okay. off your tongue. So right? catchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, up in Canada they call it Cusma, and down in Mexico they call it Musca. Uh, the um, the look, it, it's uh, we are uh, in a slightly better place for USMCA, or as I call it, NAFTA 2.0, yeah. uh, than we were at the beginning of the week. Nancy Pelosi this week signaled that. A vote on this was imminent, um, and that's really interesting. Uh, she also has indicated that some big labor groups like the AFL-CIO may be willing to come on board, which would really be game-changing in terms of trade agreements. And Donald Trump and his trade negotiators, if that all happens, should get a lot of credit for, in some ways, rewriting the politics of NAFTA. This was a deal that, that Donald Trump campaigned uh, against. And NAFTA was the worst trade ag agreement in the world, and now he's turned it into the greatest. Uh, kind of interesting transformation there um, but it's it's real and we need to recognize it all right we are going to leave it there thank you both so much sean don and senior trade reporter joining us from washington check out his story in this week's issue of bloomberg business week and business week global economics editor christina lindblad Asmaka. as well Asmaka. Yeah, I like the different variations depending on the country. That's that's a new wrinkle. Sometimes I like it's it. just a big trade agreement. Startups with at least one female founder while they raise 21% more in venture capital funding than companies with all-male teams. This is according to a study released this fall by the Kaufman Fellows Research Center. So let's talk about that in particular. It's kind of a surprising stat. 
You're surprised, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Just given all the other really dismal news for women in the startup world. Well, there is some dismal. There is some downside. We'll get to that in in a moment. Let's talk about this, though, and really early stage VC investing with someone who knows an awful lot about it. Alexa Fontobel is founder of LearnVest. She's also founder and managing partner at Inspired Capital, and she joins us, well known to the Bloomberg audience, joining us on the phone here in New York City. Uh, Alexa, good to have you here uh, with Jason and myself on this Friday. Tell us a little bit about, um, just a reminder of what you guys are doing at Inspired, uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the VC world. Well, first, thank you guys so much. Um, So we have a brand new firm here headquartered in New York City, but investing around the country called Inspired Capital. We're a $200 million firm. And what makes us a little bit different is that all of our investors have also been operators. So people like Penny Pritzker, who has built and scaled six companies after helping put Obama in the White House and being Secretary of Commerce, uh, and to other investors like the co-founder of Paperless Post. So uh, kind of a a fresh new face to, to venture here in New York City. And so as you look at the sort of competitive landscape across venture, you know, this is a market, it feels like here in New York, especially that has matured in a very positive way and expanded uh, in a positive way. What do you see uh, across the landscape in terms of the sort of types of money uh, that's out there chasing deals? So first, as, as you can imagine, there's an abundance of capital out there chasing deals. Uh, we get excited, um, uh, again, because we're headquartered in New York. There's $1 here to $12 in the Valley. So for the entrepreneurs that are here, we're reminding them not to get on planes and fly west. You have right. more capital that's constantly standing up in, in New York City. The other thing I think that really sets us apart is that every dollar is as green as the next until it's not because it actually comes with the sort of people who have been in the seats. Uh, we know how to build companies. It is an expertise for us. Uh, you know, I sold LearnVest for a few hundred million dollars to Northwestern Mutual. Um, we, uh, as a as a group of, of team members, have uh, you know literally held the reins in our hands. So we know how to build companies, scale them, sell them, uh, and I think that really does um, set us apart. Because if you can help an individual save time in those early executions, it's incredibly valuable. Well, you know, it's interesting. As Jason said, he was surprised with the the line I read about you know some optimism in terms of female founders at startups. But there's still so many hurdles. Uh, another stat I came across was only about 22% of all startups are founded by at least one woman, or by one wi- woman, excuse me, and teams made up of just women have the hardest time raising money, especially if they run what are considered gen- gender-neutral businesses. So you, know, you do see like money going into, you know, female-founded businesses that are kind of female, <laughs> you know, oriented versus when they're just playing with everybody else, it's harder. I mean, are things changing? What are you seeing on that front? Well, so first, I think one thing that's amazing, so our, our firm, again, Inspired Capital, $200 million. We invest in seeds and Series A companies of all shapes and sizes. So mm-hmm. we're generalists on, we'll look at every category. One thing that I think is pretty powerful is the world's just fundamentally changed. The entrepreneurs of tomorrow are looking for modern money, right? The entrepreneurs of tomorrow, if you look at YC this year, it was 50-50 male, female. And as you think about that, you know, the stats are pretty abysmal, about 2.6% or 2.9% based on who you quote um, of capital has a, a female partner. Um, our firm just looks modern. We are a modern firm. Um, we focus on all businesses. Uh, we back men and uh, uh, female founders, uh, but I think just the fact that 
we came to the gate as a very modern firm. We span generations. We've been investors. We've been operators. We know our way around that early startup um, scene because we're the people who, candidly, you know, we, we helped build the fabric of the New York City tech ecosystem. Right. Uh, uh, for the last 15 years, it, we're here to help entrepreneurs save a lot of time and energy. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Alexa, thank you so much. Alexa Von Tobel, founder of LearnVest, founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, joining us on the phone uh, from New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Guillaume Escoto. He's head of ESG Investments at American Century Investments. They've got uh, roughly $171 billion in assets under management. Uh, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Nice to have you here with us. Thanks very much for having me. How much is ESG in terms of the whole portfolio over at American Century. Right. At the moment, it's approximately $60 billion, yeah. and uh, we're looking to integrate an additional $30 billion in next year. So that's very a lot. excited about that. Yes, sir. I mean, percentage-wise, yeah. that's a lot based on the figures that, that we just laid out. Has that accelerated dramatically over the past few years? It has. Uh, ever since we've started uh, integrating ESG factors into our investment process, we've seen continuous momentum on the part of executive management to, to make a push towards expanding integration across our entire investment complex. And I have to say, this also has to do a lot with our DNA as an asset management company. As you know, we are owned by the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, world-class medical facility, medical research facility in Kansas City, whereby we distribute 40% of our annual dividends to founding cures for cancer and other gene-based diseases. Well, you know, and what's interesting, we have a story on the terminal. It's actually trending high among the most read, and it talks about three money managers who quit a major fund. Uh, NN Investment Partners um, because the ESG rules tightened and this is I believe over in Europe and I guess rules are tightening and I do wonder how you guys define ESG because mm -hmm. I feel like the definition can be rather wide and broad. Absolutely. It can actually differ per uh, different markets yeah. uh, and also uh, different uh, you know investors might have a different opinion. For us ESG factors constitute a key uh, input into our fundamental research process. We see this as being aligned with our fiduciary duty and our objective by integrating such factors is to mitigate downside risk, but also capture upside potential. But really, we consider this as a key input into how we invest every day. But what does it mean, ESG? Can a firm be bad on one level, but moving in a better direction, and your guys are like, check, check, that's it's, good? It's very important to have a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. If you have a company that hits the mark under the environmental pillar, but has very terrible governance, then that does not constitute a holistic approach to ESG investing. So then you won't invest? We would actually highlight the governance risk and elevate that to our portfolio managers, but then because it's integrated, the objective is to then move forward and in integrating this into valuation, into portfolio construction. So when you think about, Guillaume, sort of your customers, I think it's safe to say that part of the reason you guys are investing so heavily in this, pun intended, is because the market, your customers are ultimately asking for this. They're demanding it in some cases, and, and I would imagine voting with their dollars. Tell us about that and what you hear from, from customers in terms of what they want and what their definitions, mm -hmm. to Carol's point, uh, are or, or may be as it relates to ESG. 
we actually see a very interesting trend is because of this regulatory push towards defining ESG, a lot of our clients are actually worried about that. Interesting. Because they think that they shouldn't need the government to tell them what is the definition ah. of what matters to their you know, constituents. So we think that going forward, there might be a little bit of a debate around that, right? There's a pension funds out there in the world that actually have been doing investment, uh, sustainable investment for quite some time. And now the government is coming up with these standards and they're like, well, listen, do we have a say into this? Because we are the best position to know what our, what our constituents want, right? So we remain focused on delivering solutions for all of our clients across the world, regardless of their investment objectives. And when it comes to ESG, our thesis is going forward, asset management companies will have to have multiple capabilities hmm. to service these clients that have different needs and who's also, whose needs are also evolving. Well, it's interesting too. Um, you know, I do wonder about like standards set by the government, but I do think at some point, you know, you have to have some kind of rules, right? So that you can compare mm. what you guys are doing in terms of your funds versus another one. Do you not? Well, at that's, some point? Uh, you know, absolutely. We do welcome, for example, more regulation regulation around, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, disclosure. That's going to be very important because right now there's no standard for disclosure. So uh, for us as investors, the more transparency companies could be, the, the more transparent that is companies could be the best. And I think it puts pressure best. on companies. To it does. do kind of the right thing. It does, but we we would we would um, make sure that the, the the quality of disclosure becomes first before the quantity of disclosure, because that's a risk to having so many different types of data points out there that it might not be financially material and might risk confusing or clustering the ESG signal for investors to make decisions. So, what's the best way of measuring ESG in your view? I mean, you guys say holistic, so you're sure. looking at it from very you know a bunch of different angles. So you can't have a company that's polluting, but they've got a lot of women on the board. <laughs> so. <laughs> Right? You're saying that you guys want it all across the board. You want all the boxes checked. We we want to make sure that the boxes are checked insofar as these issues are material to the sector-specific dynamics. What does that mean? I'm so, sorry. So, for example, if you have an energy company, right, the environmental pillar is going to be much higher in terms of weight in our rating than the social or governance pillar, right? That's because ah, these companies have strong external environmental externalities, right, that actually uh, can bring about risk to investors. That being said, when we will rate a bank, yeah. then we'll put much more emphasis under the social and governance pillar. Hmm. So will that, how has that evolved over time then? Because I would imagine maybe to build on Carol's point that someone who would look at that sort of screen and say, oh, okay, well that's cool that you're very interested in the environment for an energy company, but they've got a bunch of 70 year old white dudes uh, running the company. Right. And so right. maybe I'm not as interested there. That all will depend on the client's objective. Some clients want us to mitigate risks associated with certain sector key material issues. In the case of energy, we all know it's climate change, it's water stress, it's the whole concept of stranded assets. So they might wanna make sure that, hey, even if the board might not be stellar, right? If the board is actually doing the right thing to to mitigate the company's external environmental footprint, then it might be satisfied with that. However, for companies whose, whose core assets is people, banks, right, for example, well, in that case, they will prefer having a lot of diversity mm. on the board, right? And they might actually penalize the company from corporate misconduct. But it's really taking risk out as an, as an investment. Correct. Right, That's it's not so, because what this says to me is that we talk so much about ESG, that yeah. this is kind of early thinking about ESG, that it isn't necessarily, you know, kind of being, 
really embracing kind of all that is ESG. Like you really are just, you're taking a specific industry, right, and taking out the risk factors. Well, the goal is to, again, is to contextualize this per sector specific dynamics so that we can better integrate this into our investment process. So we wouldn't feel necessarily that a social, uh, let's say, issue uh, that really matters to the pharmaceutical sector could be applied the same way yeah. to the mining sector. So okay. it's very important to have huh. sector contextualization. That's interesting. really interesting. I have to right? say, this is the, the most nuanced conversation I feel like we ever had about ESG. <laughs> yeah, We're really great. uh, grateful to you for uh, Thank you. Uh, spending some time with us. Guillaume Moscoto is head of ESG investments for American Century Investments. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.